Just a reminder that Something Positive for Positive People is supported by Dating Positives. And don't forget about that call line, you guys. Um, it's a very safe, anonymous way for you to call and put out there what it is that you're looking for this upcoming holiday season as far as romance goes. And that phone number, again, is 833-927-5683. If you spell it out, it's just 833-YES-LOVE. That's Y-A-S-L-O-V-E. I really struggle with saying it that way. But um, I told you guys about the anonymous call line, and I want to make sure that everybody knows that this is safe and secure. We've had a few people reach out with concerns about that. Like, are they going to know what my number is? Are they going to send my number to bill collectors and 1-800 numbers? No. All we're going to do is take your call and play it on the podcast um, so that we're encouraging more interaction from people who are dating. So it's just interesting that they, they really want to see what it is that you're looking for. And it's really cool to be able to see the wide range of responses that we get. And here's one right here. I'll play for you guys now. Um, what I'm hoping for romantically this holiday season is just a little alone time with my partner. This will be maybe our fourth or fifth holiday season together, but we'll be splitting the holidays between our families, and it can get kind of hectic, and we spend hours traveling, and we spend all of our time shopping for gifts and going to holiday parties and planning all this stuff with with friends and it's all wonderful and great but then even though we're together during it we don't often get to really have any one-on-one time in the winter which is when you need it the most I think so my goal for this season is just to plan a few date nights and maybe try to escape the the hectic Christmas Eve and just stand in another room without the family for a little while and just really appreciate being able to have my partner during the holidays. And, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. So happy holidays, everybody. So as you can see, you don't need to be single and dating in order to have uh, any romantic goals for the holiday season. You can be in a relationship as well. I'm in one and I can relate to our previous caller in terms of wanting just some alone time with your partner. The holiday seasons are really busy and um, being in a relationship, you're, you're constantly dating. Please don't forget to date your significant other. So if you haven't called in yet just because you're in a relationship and you feel like this doesn't apply to you or if you feel like you're afraid of someone finding out um, that you called in and you're concerned about them thinking that you may have herpes or an STI, please don't worry about that. This is just something that's fun, um, again, to just encourage involvement and it also gives people ideas. Like I hadn't even thought about spending more one-on-one time with my partner this holiday season until I heard this message. It's like, wow, you know, we are doing a lot of family events, friend events. We've got Friendsgiving coming up, um, Thanksgiving. By the time you hear this, we'll have already passed. But just there, there's not really much time set aside for intimacy with our current partner so let's be sure to make time for that as well and if you are dating and single um, we still want to hear from you too so again that phone number is 833-YES-LOVE that's 833-927-5683 and just leave your voicemail response and again if you don't feel comfortable with that you can also just direct message uh, dating positives on instagram or twitter it's just dating positives all right let's get into the podcast Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. 
Something Positive for Positive People is a podcast featuring the experiences of those living with or affected by sexually transmitted infections. Today I'm with Dating Positive spokesperson Josh Robbins, who's from Nashville. He is the 2018 National Lesbian and Gay Journalist Association Excellence in Journalism Award recipient, the 2017 GLAD Media Award nominee. He publishes I'mStillJosh.com, is an HIV activist, has been invited to the White House, not with the current administration, of course, and TEDx Nashville speaker. Josh, how are you today? Man, uh, I am great. I'm so excited to be here talking to you. This is just like, uh, this podcast is legendary, and um, I just am excited about this conversation. Man, I am too. I don't get a lot of guys on here, considering what the numbers are, but a lot of men just don't want to have this kind of a conversation i understand that i get it it's not real bro to uh, be talking about when things are messed up down below (laughs) i like the way you put that that could be the title of this episode it's not real bro to talk about when things get messed up down below right pretty catchy So, so i understand that but you know if you think about guys just in general about our health I know that before my diagnosis, I didn't go to the doctor very much. So I wasn't like super connected to my health or to my sexual health even. And so it's kind of like the once removed thing. So it makes sense. Yeah. I can count off the top of my head. There have been five guys out of the 65 podcast episodes that have been on this podcast to talk about their uh, SCI status and living with their condition. So thank you for being a part of this, especially taking time away from all of the things that you have going on um, in order for us to have this conversation and help some people. Oh, yeah. No, thank you for what you're doing. You're saving lives and it's really important. So the kudos and hats off to you. I appreciate that. You've got a lot of uh, accolades, as mentioned in the introduction. So first, let's talk about the TEDx talk in Nashville. What did you speak on? Uh, so, wow, that was such a crazy opportunity. I don't know. Have you seen any, uh, have you watched like TEDx videos? I have. Well, so I was only like generally familiar with what they had going on, but I knew that as soon as I got asked that it was an honor, right? Um, I was like, oh yeah, this is a big deal. Uh, so I immediately said yes, of course. What I spoke on was people using the power of social media uh, to help them manage their and other people's chronic conditions. So, uh, for example, I, you know, I'm an HIV blogger, and so I open up about my life and about living with HIV and, and what that means on social media. And the benefits that I get back from that include having a purpose, which is kind of big, you know, like having passion and going after what's important to you. But it also is, you know, and I know you've shared some of these stories there are really big moments that happen for other people that we may not even always know about in our advocacy and our different platforms. But, you know, I've had about 15 or 20 people that have told me that they were on the verge literally of committing suicide and they decided not to because they saw something that inspired them or that spoke to them you know, or that they watched or heard in a video or something, uh, you know, content that I'd put out. And so that's what I talked about at the TEDx talk. So it was a really unique talk and I featured activists from a ton of health conditions, some that were HIV, STI related, but my mom is a good example. She was on her death couch 
15 years ago. And about six years ago, I convinced her to start a blog about MS, multiple sclerosis. She lives with that. Whether it's coincidence or not, I don't know, but my mom is thriving now. She is a new woman. She's out walking all the time. And I really think that it, there's a power that comes, a very positive power that comes from people when you decide to open your life up and share your journey for the world uh, on social media. And I think that it is beneficial to your health. I can't prove it, but it's highly coincidental. And, uh, and so I shared people that were like uh, living with diabetes or people that advocate online for mental health issues. So all these different health issues. And I just talked about the power that social media brings to peer to peer health. And it was really cool. Yeah. Uh, and it went good, I think, you know, the video's out and I got good photos, so that's really all that matters at this point. And so is your mom continuing to do that advocacy work? Yeah, she is. As a matter of fact, my mom, not this past December, the December before, she trained all year on a rock climbing wall at her gym. She climbed to the top of the wall, which is unbelievable. If you know anything about MS or multiple sclerosis, it's a degenerative disease that makes it almost impossible to do something like that. But she is doing it. She's inspiring me and her blog's a whole lot, held a lot better than mine. <laughs> Mom's a warrior. Yeah. It's apparent by now, but um, you're living with HIV. How long have you been diagnosed? What? I'm living with HIV? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. You know, it's really funny when I go, every once in a while I'll go to like an, an AIDS service organization or HIV service organization and I'll allow them to do an HIV test on me. And if the, the person doesn't know that I'm positive, I think it's really funny to see that moment. They get really uncomfortable and they have to do, give me a diagnosis. And I just sit there and take it. Uh, and then I start laughing and let them know that I already did. But they about die. But I think it's important. It's like I'm, I'm checking up on the testers to make sure that they're giving the, the news right. But yeah, so uh, December 18th of 2011, I had uh, sex with somebody and I was they didn't know that they uh, had HIV when I asked, do you have HIV? They said no, uh, as far as I know. And then I was like, cool, sounds good to me. And January 2nd, 2012, I got really sick. I had like 30 ulcers in my mouth. Um, and I immediately got tested because I was a part of a vaccine study. And then I got my final diagnosis on January 24, 2012. Are ulcers a sign of HIV? It, it can be. Yeah. So there's a lot of different symptoms that can be um, associated with acute HIV infection. However, 50% of people don't have any symptoms or mm. they miss them. So there are no like like deep telltale signs if you are um, infected. So the only way to know if you have HIV is to get tested often uh, and regularly. That's the only way to get diagnosed so that you, you can then get on treatment and live a long, healthy life. Unfortunately for me, I had every symptom in the freaking book. What are some like, of them? Yeah, I was like a damn case study. Uh, <laughs> I guess, so let's say I had a headache, like an ongoing headache that would not go away. A flu-like symptoms, so how you feel when you have the flu. For me, I had night sweats. I would wake up and my body would be completely wet, the bed damp from me sweating. And so that is a, a big symptom. And, and a lot of people have shared that with me. 
it was almost like I wet the bed. Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, what? And then, uh, you know, fatigue, just being really, really tired. And it makes sense that your body is like killing itself, working overtime, trying to like figure out what's going on. And this is all happening pretty rapidly. So for me, you know, it lasted that acute HIV infection lasted about three weeks. And it was, it was hell for me, but there's other people that have been infected for years and have no idea. Between the time of exposure and beginning to show the symptoms, how much time passed? Well, so it was December the 18th, 2011, that I was exposed unknowingly. And January 2nd, 2012, I just when I got sick. Oh, so, so that's when you got sick. I'm sorry. I thought that that yeah. was when you were diagnosed. Okay. Oh, yeah. No, I was diagnosed in, uh, later in January that same year. So you're right. It did happen very quickly. From December 18th to January 2nd, that is the time frame when I went from being exposed to being infected. And then from January 2nd to January 24th is when I went through several uh, HIV tests and confirmations so I was diagnosed just over a month after exposure. How was your knowledge about HIV, SCIs as a whole, prior to exposure and your diagnosis? I think most people like to believe that they are aware of STIs and HIV, specifically because... I'm gay, and so living in the LGBT community and that sort of thing, we always wear a red ribbon on World AIDS Day, and we're supposed to remember those people. And so it was really important. HIV and STD awareness and STI awareness, for me, was a cause that I supported. It was like a page on Facebook back in the day. You remember when you, they had, like, God, God page, and you would like it because you felt like if you didn't like that page. You were going to go God, to hell. Yeah, God would be <laughs> mad at you. Or it would be like driving in the sunlight on a 70-degree weather page, and you had to like it if you liked 70-degree weather. HIV and STI awareness for me was kind of similar, that I knew who to follow and knew the things to say. I didn't really know any facts about it, and it, it was just a cause. So much so, you'll think this is funny, I was literally a poster boy for an HIV vaccine study in Nashville when I was diagnosed with HIV, I was in an HIV vaccine study. They had used my image on their posters. They put the posters all over the bathrooms in Nashville. So literally, I was a poster boy for HIV awareness and prevention. Then I got diagnosed, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, there are posters all over the city with my face on it. I got really nervous so much I called the vaccine and I wanted them to know. And I was like, hey, look, y'all got to do something because I don't want this to ruin the vaccine study enrollments because people would think that I got it from the vaccine. They were like, no, it's fine. And I'm like, no, I really insist. You know, eventually I think they did. But that was also part of the very first part of my advocacy. Not only was I telling people that I had HIV, but I needed them to know that I got it through sex from being exposed to HIV and not from a vaccine study, that it, that it was not related. When you were diagnosed, did you confront your previous partner? Um, well, so confront is a strong word, because oh. uh, that's like fighting terms in my book, uh, confront. No, I think <laughs> I, uh, I called and I was like, hey, um, I was just diagnosed 
And it, it, I'll be honest, that was probably one of the hardest calls that I've ever made in my whole life. But I called and I said, based on the timeline of when I was confirmed as HIV negative, which was on November the 30th, 2011, because I was a part of the vaccine study, the only possible person that it could have been is you. And so that's what I told the person on the phone. And I said, I'm not accusing you of anything. You know, at this point, it doesn't, it, I mean, it doesn't really even matter. Uh, but I just think that you should go get tested if you are not aware uh, that you're positive or not. If you don't know your, you know, your status, I just really, really, really think you should go get tested. And, uh, and they went and got tested and they called me back and said, uh, uh, you know, that they were positive as well. And so, um, I think that, you know, I certainly never expected to have to make that call to that person or to anybody. Um, but it's also, I think the right thing to do. Um, I think ethically, you know, it would be, I don't think there would be good karma if I didn't have called that person and said, Hey, you should go get tested. Even if I was mad and, and now, you know, I'm not mad and I wasn't mad then, but I think that that is, that it's natural for some people to be upset with somebody because they feel like they need to blame somebody, um, for their STI infection. When in fact, you know, if I, I participated in consensual sex, like I knew the risks and I took a risk. Um, I didn't choose to get HIV. They didn't choose to give me HIV. I don't see it that way, but I chose to, um, engage in something that had HIV risk. And, uh, and from that, then, you know, it happened and it happened. So, um, actually on my blog, I let that person, uh, write two anonymous articles and the articles were, I'm the person that infected Josh. Um, and it was really important to do that because what I started noticing happening and I've never shared with anybody who the, that person is because I, I don't think that it's important. Um, but I started noticing people started talking to me about this person, this like ethereal being that they didn't know who he was but they started trashing this person, like just kind of talking bad about them, um, which I understand because my family, they felt like something hurt me. And so they wanted to get mad at whatever it is that hurt me. And I didn't really like that energy around me um, with my family or friends. And so I wanted this person to have the opportunity to speak for themselves, even though they are not out about their status at all, which is fine. Um, but I wanted them to be humanized a little bit because we always think about and this is kind of an important, timely discussion because like Monica Lewinsky, for example, just started talking about kind of her version of what happened with Bill Clinton. And, you know, we always demonize one person in a scenario when the reality is, is there's a, a need for humanity to, to happen for everybody in a situation. And so I just wanted to humanize this person uh, and allow him to speak for himself. And, um, and it actually gave me a ton of closure on this, you know, on the topic and that situation. But it also, um, 
it changed my family's perspective of someone they didn't know. Um, and they stopped viewing me as a victim, um, or as, you know, somebody that was done wrong. I don't see it that way, but they did. Um, and by allowing him to kind of tell his story and his version of kind of what went with what's happened, um, I think that it really combated that, that, like that fear and that, uh, anger or those feelings of animosity that we sometimes have. Um, and I think that it also speaks to like HIV criminalization that we feel like we should point the finger at somebody all the time when in fact we in consensual sex every person in the act has a responsibility for themselves personal responsibility um and i think that that is kind of where that all comes from i know that was a long-winded answer to that but it's important to like think about that all of that is very important and kudos to you for being so mature and handling that and not contributing to the negative energy around blame and anger and needing to point the finger at somebody. Right. Having no real answer to where it could have come from or where my diagnosis could have come from, I didn't really have that. So I didn't have anybody to look to but myself. But unfortunately, a lot of people find themselves in a situation where they are able to point the finger at someone. Even if it is exactly who it was, there can even be a hypothetical, like maybe it was this person. I don't know. Once you... I use the word confront just because that's the energy that comes up after a diagnosis and the negative yeah. situation. When you bring it to, I think that's a better way of putting it, when you bring it to another person, just being able to sit with it yourself and decide, okay, you know, this was, like you said, a mutual act. It was a consensual act, and I have to take responsibility for myself. I have to take responsibility for my health. Being able to view it that way in a mature manner speaks volumes to a person's character. And for you, this was seven years ago when you were diagnosed. For you to have had that maturity level speaks volumes to your character, your integrity, like your family and the values that have been instilled in you. So for someone who may not know, how do you recommend someone get closure from not knowing where to get closure at? I think it's a double-edged sword, not to make it intense. There's pros and cons from pluses and negatives uh, for, for either way. Like people that know who may have exposed them to an STI or to HIV, we look at the other people that don't know, and sometimes we may wish that we didn't know so that we don't have those feelings towards somebody. On the other hand, people that don't know are looking at us and going, you're so lucky that you know. And so I feel like that it's one of those situations where it really doesn't matter. If we are people that believe that we're going to move forward and that we're going to win and that we're going to live and that we're going to live well and healthy, we can't continue to look at the past. And we can't be defining those people by an action that we may or may not blame them for. But at the end of the day, that's way too much energy to be spending on something that you can't change. Uh, and so I would just, if that is where people are at, and I understand it because, uh, I, I mean, I can understand that people would be there, but you would have better results literally going and just running into a door all day than, uh, than spending trying to like, like justify or figure that part out 
the answer is just go to a therapist and like work it out. I went to a therapist twice right after I was diagnosed and they were like, why are you here? And I'm like, I don't know. It was free. And I thought it would be cool to lay on the couch and talk to you. But I went in specifically because I wanted to be able to, I said, I want to make sure I don't hate this person. I just want to make sure that I'm okay. And that, you know, I've worked through all of these feelings and, and all of that. Uh, and so that's the only reason I'm here. And once I figure out that I'm through with that, if I don't need you anymore, I ain't coming back. Therapists, like, I think they get a, a bad rap because, like, being shrinks or whatever. But at the end of the day, they also are taking notes. Uh, yeah, no, my girl was writing a book over there. So I'm like, what are we, what are you writing? And she said, well, what do you think I'm writing? I said, oh, oh. I'm playing like that. This, these sessions are over, hope. Uh, did you get her notes at the end so you can put it in a book? No, I don't even want to care. I don't even care. I don't even care because I worked through it. And I wasn't going to hold no animosity toward her either. Mm -hmm. But they, yeah, I think it's important for people to like not be afraid to go to a therapist and work through any kind of feelings that you have. I mean, getting an STI diagnosis is a life-altering event. It's not a, a positive or a negative milestone. It just is an event that is really important in your health and your life will change. For me, I think that my life is uh, better. I mean, I'm not thrilled that I got diagnosed with HIV, but I'm also not sitting over here, you know, weeping in sorrow and sadness because I have an HIV diagnosis. I'm meeting cool people and I'm caring now more about my health than I ever have. And I'm going to live as long as some of my peers that are HIV negative. And I'm now more educated, way more educated about HIV and STIs than I was six or seven years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and that's empowering. So, you know, it's like weird. Everything in life, they always try to tell us to stay positive. You know, stay positive. Good, good thing you're positive. But then, except they want you to stay HIV negative or STI negative. I'm like, y'all got that wrong. We should really want to be staying STI positive so everything works out. But, you know, like, I think it's all a mental thing. And I'll tell you that the three weeks that it took for me from the initial test to get the diagnosis, those are the longest nights and days of my life. You know, I'm in my Nashville condo right now and, like, literally right there – I would fall on the floor at night and I would cry for those three weeks. I mean, bawling and nobody would know about it. And just me. And I would go to, and I would fall asleep crying and I'd wake up and I'd have carpet marks on my face from where I had fallen asleep crying. And about after probably the fourth time that I woke up and I had like indentions on my face, I was like, Oh, hell no. Okay. You know, HIV may give me, but this carpet is not about to bust my face up. And so I literally had to pull myself off the floor and said, no, get back in the bed. And then get up out of the bed, take a shower, eat, and then get out of the house. You got work to do. And, uh, and that's what happened. Everything that you just said is important because you were broken down. And I often say the stories that are on this podcast, if you go back and listen to anyone who's faced a positive diagnosis, they were presented with adversity and their response to that adversity put them in a position where unutilized energy 
of frustration, anger, sorrow, despair, even guilt, shame. All of these emotions that they had as a result of stigma, which is built by people who have no fucking clue what it's like to have an STI or an HIV or an STD, nor do they know anything about it. Because I don't know about you, but when I was diagnosed, I became herpes expert. <laughs> so once you went through that struggle, that positive diagnosis and worked through the emotions, you found yourself like, okay, like almost from like an, another voice inside of your head, you were on the floor crying and you had to tell yourself, Hey, get in the bed. And then when you got in the bed, you had to convince yourself, Hey, all right, we got to get up out of this bed. We got to leave the house. We got to go eat food. You found yourself being able to take those small steps. You did one thing, you did a little thing, and then the wheel picked up enough momentum. So from there, once you were able to do those small, you know, almost effortless things, when you're not in a state of disparity, what was next? How did you get to a point where you were able to be, I'm still Josh, the Josh yeah. that we have right here? How did he break through that cocoon? Or through the glass ceiling. The glass know? ceiling. <laughs> Talking about that with people, too. I, I, let me say this. I give credit to my support circle. I think that it, it's really important that um, people have that support circle in their life because if they don't... Um, they are not, they're not going to be able to do this on their own. So whether that support circle is like a social support circle or a therapist or family or friends or one person or someone anonymous that doesn't even know who you are, like I think it's really important for people to have people around them that love them and that just want to show them love regardless of having HIV or herpes or syphilis or uh, uh, HPV or hepatitis or, you know, anything, right? For me, the only way that I was going to get through that diagnosis once that I finally got it, on the day that I found out that I was living with HIV, I traveled to my hometown and I told my family in person that day. Um, it was still fresh news to me. Uh, and I went home uh, to my hometown, and I sat my mom and my stepdad at a, the dinner table, and I told them, and then I left, and I went to my dad and my stepmom and woke them up because it was like 7 at night, and it was dark, and my dad is so damn country. Yeah, he's <laughs> like, the sun's down. So I'm going to bed. I'm like, Dad, it's 7 o'clock. So I woke him up at 7, and I was like, I need to talk to you. And I like I just talked it through with both sets of my fam uh, parents, and then I went to sleep. I got up the next day and I was like, okay, now what do I do? And it was like, okay, you got to drive back to Nashville. And so I think at the beginning, I just did everything in, like you said, baby steps. But it was right for me at that time to tell my family. I was safe, so I wouldn't be harmed by telling them. I wanted to tell them. I thought that it was important for me to share that with them. That's my story and my journey. I don't think that that's always the way that it should go down. I don't think that I'm brave or whatever for talking about it. You know, the firefighters that are fighting the fires right now in California, that's bravery. Me talking about having an STI or HIV on social media is not brave. Telling people is not brave, but it just was right for me. It's right, yes, right for you. That's right. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think a lot of people like elevate, you know, influencers or, or people like you and I that are like open about it. But it's just our journey. Yeah. So their journey is still valid. 
however they need to go about it. And I support them in that. So it's really important for me to share that with them. But like to get where I, I don't think that I ever woke up and was like, hey, I'm about to try to be an HIV activist. I, hell, I didn't even know what an HIV activist is. And activist sounds like marching. And I know everybody is on like a marching bandwagon right now. And that's fine and dandy. But I'm not. Yeah, okay? I, I got to get up and go to work. <laughs> okay, I'm going to be predisposed because I ain't going down to that damn march. Yeah. But I might, I will bail y'all out of jail. You know, if y'all give me your credit card in advance. Like, <laughs> I, <laughs> I will be happy to do that part. It won't charge a service fee or anything. Shipping and handling, uh, but you know, like I didn't know what activist was. I think after seven years, like I'm beginning to figure that part out. All I wanted to do was share my journey, and I just wanted people that were living with HIV not to feel alone and and not to feel like that the the day that they got the worst news in their life that 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 was the best day uh, moving forward. I didn't want them to feel like that that day was their death, um, that they that they should commit suicide or they should end it all or make some rash decision or run away. And that's why I named it I'm Still Josh, because I'm still exactly who I was before my diagnosis. Like nothing changed. I'm still funny as hell. OK, I was funny as hell before. And then I got the diagnosis and I'm funny as hell now. I now just make more HIV jokes, like, you know, get out of the HIV lane on the interstate. It's the HOV lane, I call it the HIV. Or uh, people, you raise them a viral load, and when they, they bugging me, I'm like, y'all just need to calm the F down. Or when uh, people are like, stay positive. Or it's really it's, it's really great that you're staying positive about this. And I'm like, y'all, I don't have, I don't a, have a choice. <laughs> okay. Until we got a cure, I'm kind of stuck being positive. Yeah. So while we're on the topic of a cure, while there may not be a said cure, there is um, undetectable means untransmittable. You want to talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So undetectable equals untransmittable or hashtag you equals you is... A, a revolutionary, scientific, fact-based uh, campaign and movement that has taken over the world. And what it says that is, if somebody is living with HIV and we take HIV medications, which are antiretroviral therapy, the goal is to bring the viral load down so much so that it hits the undetectable level. So uh, once we hit that undetectable level, they are now saying, according to research, and it's fact, that I, I will not transmit HIV to a sexual partner, even in the absence of a condom, even if the partner is not on PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis. That's what I, that was going to be the next question. So if I'm someone who is sexually active um, and I'm on PrEP, let's say I engage with a partner or partners who may not be aware of their HIV status, but they are positive, if yep. I'm on PrEP... Does that reduce the risk or does it eliminate the risk of me contracting HIV? So it almost eliminates the risk. Okay. Almost. Okay. Uh, so PrEP right now, the only uh, version of PrEP that we have available is Truvada. So T-R-U-V-A-D-A, Truvada. Uh, it's made by Gilead Sciences, a big pharmaceutical company. 
that's the only version now. Now, there's other clinical trials going on of other medications to use as PrEP, uh, but they're not approved yet. So uh, Truvada is the only one. It is, I think, like 99% effective. The only time that Truvada doesn't work, that PrEP doesn't work currently, is that if somebody has an HIV strain that has a resistance to the drug Truvada, okay? So it makes sense. You can't, if somebody is resistant to the medicine that is supposed to prevent it, then the it will break through that barrier. Yeah. And so that's been the, the couple times that people have called them PrEP failures, but in my opinion, that's really not a failure because it was never intended, like Truvada is never intended to prevent HIV strain that is resistant to Truvada. Right, right. Like it's like a no-brainer. So it's like 99% effective. Uh, if someone is undetectable, though, that is 100% that there is zero risk. That's unbelievable. If you think yeah. about where we've come in the epidemic, I mean, it's truly unbelievable, and it speaks volumes to the drugs that we now have from the pharmaceutical <clears throat> companies that get a very bad rap from a lot of people. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm friendly with the pharmaceutical industry because, one, they're keeping me alive, but, number two, when they come out with a cure, I'm going to be like, hey. Hey, I need that. We <laughs> Remember me? Yeah, remember me past that pill over y'all. Real quick, let me let me have some of that. Um, and so, like, it's dumb to me a little bit that people, you know, but I ain't trying to correct them because yeah. I don't want them to get in line in front of me. You know, uh. just like I got the VIP card. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, I think that uh, the tools are out there. So whether you want to use a condom or not. Uh, in regard to HIV prevention, mm-hmm. whether you want to use a condom or not, whether you want to use other prevention methods, it's your choice. They're out there. And uh, people that are living with HIV that are undetectable are not somebody you should fear. Got it. So what's going on right now? Where are we with criminalization for HIV or uh, passing on HIV? Is that what it is? Yeah, so what we have is we have laws across many of the states, about 35 states across the country, have pretty harsh, archaic HIV criminalization laws. They criminalize for allegedly non-disclosing. So say that I bring somebody home from the bar. I don't disclose to them. I am not undetectable or it doesn't matter, but I have sex with them and then we come back uh, and they get HIV and then they find out that I didn't tell them. Then uh, in Tennessee, for example, it's a felony. I could be charged with a felony and that is up to 15 years in jail per sexual act. So if I had a threesome, girl, that's like 30 years right there. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, dang, man. I mean, there are people that have killed people that are out of jail sooner than that. Yeah. And, um, and, and so all joking aside, these laws, one, every major health organization and, that has expertise in the prevention of HIV, all are calling for these laws to be uh, eliminated or, or at least at the minimum updated. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason is, is because these laws actually prevent people or impede people wanting to know their status. Because if you don't know your status, you're not held to the legal responsibility, right? So 
what that means is that we've got these people that are scared to get tested because they don't want to be held criminally liable for their actions, but they are then highly viral, meaning that they have a very high viral load. They're going to die pretty soon. They're infecting people. And it's all because of this, this statute and these laws that have been made out to you know, demonize people that are living with HIV. Mm. I just told you that if somebody's undetectable, <laughs> that I can't transmit it. Yeah, so, but they can only be undetectable if they know their status. So That's right, and you're on medicine and all of that. But if, if I have sex with somebody today and I don't disclose my status, are they going to get uh, exposed to HIV? No, I'm undetectable. There is zero risk, period. That is like a full stop. However, if I don't tell them, I could still be charged with a felony and go to jail for 15 years yeah. um, in our state. And so those laws are unfair. They're unjust. Uh, they target minorities. Uh, the overwhelming prosecutions in these cases are men of color, gay men of color, and they're in jail, and they have been in jail for a long time. And it is tragic. Uh, um, we saw what happened with, I think, Michael Johnson uh, in that case where he was the wrestler. Uh, the um, He was the wrestler, I forget where it was, Missouri or, or something, and he had uh, been diagnosed and then he had sex with several people and several of those people became infected. Those people joined prosecution and put him in jail. And I think his original sentence was like 60 years in jail. Again, he didn't rape anybody. He had consensual sex and all these people knowingly took a risk action and didn't take personal responsibility for their action. And people are like, oh, well, if he lied, well, let me tell you this. People lie, okay? People lie about all kind of stuff. I've had people on, uh, you know, like uh, different dating websites, <laughs> dating pod, that would just, you know, tell you like, hey, that they that their endowment is eight inches, okay? That is like the standard. It's like when you're on the interstate and you're driving and you go the speed limit and you about get run over. Because everybody else is going 20 or 25 miles over the speed limit. So you're like, well, damn, let me do it too. That's kind of what's happened on some of these websites and apps when people talk about their endowment because everybody's not, the standard is not eight inches, okay, y'all? I'm going to tell y'all right now. I've been with a few folks. That is not the standard. However, uh, because the standard has moved to eight inches, even if it's not that then everyone feels like that's the starting point. So now we got people online talking about 11 and a half, 13, you know? <laughs> I'm like, come on now. Oh. now. They may or may not, but I'm just saying the standard has been moved from whatever it is to eight, okay? Well, I feel like that, um, you know, the, the standard has moved with people with criminalization to point the finger at the positive people all the time. Let me ask you this. How can I prove legally that I disclosed to somebody? You don't. The only thing you can prove is in a text message. Like, that would be the closest thing where I'm like, hey, you asshole, you gave me an SCI. Like, oh, I mean, I'm sorry. I wanted to tell you, but I couldn't. And that's like all you have. Right. Or so say that I bring somebody home from the bar. What Am I going to pull out a five-page contract for them right before – we do well then i'm also held to the liability that if i make somebody sign a contract 
what was their state of mind? Did we have a witness? Were they drunk? Because if they're drunk, then I, that responsibility is on me to have known that and to understand. I'm like, y'all have got to be kidding me. Yeah. There is there is no standard there's, across the country. There's way too much gray area. And, and so much so that if you claim, if somebody just claims that I had sex with them, even if I didn't, the police come to my door. They're going to knock on my door. They're going to arrest me. They're going to book me under the charge of non-disclosure. My photo, my name, and every newspaper in the city will say HIV positive Josh Robbins uh, charged with not disclosing HIV status. Okay. What if I didn't have sex with this person? There's no way that I can prove that I disclosed to somebody I didn't have sex with. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. But the burden of proof across these states is on the positive person. And let me tell you, that is not a court case that I want to be in because regardless, even if I'm not lying, if I did disclose, if they're lying or if I don't even know them, I'm going to be in the courtroom and there's going to be eight, you know, there's going to be a jury of 12 people or whatever looking at a person that's crying, pointing their finger at me, the HIV positive person. And they're going to say guilty as charged. And there's, and that's, and it's, and I'm not making this up and not dramatizing it in California. They had a a hundred percent conviction rate of people that were charged with non-disclosure like two years ago, a hundred percent. Like you, I mean, there's you can't no prove that. that you that you cannot prove that. You can't, but I mean, there's no way that people that there had to be at least one or two people, right? Mm-hmm. That like should have got off or not convicted. No, they had a hundred percent conviction rate for these charges, and so it just tells me that these laws are really fucked up. Yeah. And so you know, public health officials are against them. Advocates are against them. I think it's unconstitutional, and uh, and so the state of where we are. I've kind of, um, I've been told in our state, like there are people leading the charge and they're probably way smarter than me. They're moving at snail's pace. Okay. Mm. You know, I would have already been picketing or something. Well, I wouldn't have picketed, but I sure would have sent some letters, some emails and made some phone calls, uh, and robo called them or used technology to call them, had an airplane with a banner flying over something, um, to, you know, raise more awareness, but I guess it's coming. Um, but I also want to say one other thing, people that are still detectable with HIV, I don't think they should be criminalized either. So I'm not trying to set a wedge between somebody undetectable and detectable. I'm just saying that I don't believe that HIV or STIs should be criminalized, period. Where we are, where we are right now, um, as far as being detectable. Is that a choice or is that something where it's like the medication's too expensive because, like we said, uh, it's more common among the minority population, which is probably less likely to be able to afford treatment for HIV? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a ton of disparities. When you're looking at the HIV epidemic as a whole, there are certain groups that have a harder time accessing medication, getting into the doctor, getting tested, um, getting access to just healthcare in general. One, for example, is transgender individuals. They uh, just across the board in healthcare, they are not welcomed in the healthcare system. And so you got to start thinking about 
transgender in the South or transgender, you know, uh, people of color that that um, have not been in touch with healthcare providers, they're going to have a harder time uh, getting into treatment, staying on treatment, accessing treatment, returning for treatment. And what if then somebody stigmatizes them for something unrelated, you know, for their sexuality or for their, you know, so their sexual uh, identification or identity, like all of these things are leading up to why people can be undetectable. And then there's also medical reasons. Sometimes the medicine just doesn't work for people and that sucks. Um, But it still happens. And those people know who they are and they are detectable. But it, it doesn't matter to me. I don't think those people should be, go to jail either. Yeah. Um, I just feel like that personal responsibility should be that. And if somebody is raped, that has like been a, a, a case of like, oh, if somebody raped somebody and they have HIV, I'm like, well, if, if the charge could be increased, then we haven't criminalized rape enough, like high enough. You know, I want the maximum penalty for rape to be what it is, because if me and somebody else go to court and we've both been raped and I've been raped by somebody positive. And so the criminal that raped me goes to jail for 50 years and the person that had the same exact rape, but their person was negative, only goes to jail for 10 years. How can we look at both victims and go, oh, one rape was worse than the other? Sorry. No, it, it shouldn't work like that. They should both be in jail for 50 years. Now, as allies and supporters, how can we help advocate against these laws? What can we do to get these laws revised at the very least? What can we do? I think what, what uh, immediate action that can always help is that when you see these stories in the local news, wherever you guys live, call out the station. There should be no reason that my name, my photo... Uh, and HIV should be disclosed to the world from a charge when I haven't been convicted. What's interesting is in all of those cases, they always decide not to report the name of the alleged victim. Well, if the person's lying, then they also get this anonymous, you know, anonymity. They enjoy that. They're lying. They ruin my reputation or our reputation. And then when I'm not convicted, they, they walk away and nobody even knows. Nothing happens to them. Yeah. Yeah. And so I have a real problem with the media specifically, like they believe they have a right and a duty to inform. What is the purpose besides Mm -hmm. ruining somebody's life? I think what allies can do is speak out against it. When you see a story that leads with HIV positive, HIV positive preacher, HIV positive, you know, blah, 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 call the story out and look at it from a lens that is, as it should be looked, what if the person is innocent? And I tell you, there have been time and time again that I have contacted newspapers and television stations on behalf of a case when somebody is either deemed innocent or the case is dropped. And I'm like, where are you now reporting that this person is innocent Mm -hmm. or this person couldn't be convicted? And they all are like, oh, well, that's not in the public interest. Well, it was sure in the public interest to ruin their life. How about lifting them up. And so I like would ask uh, your listeners and, and, and you as an ally to like call out on that. And then also support positive dating websites, like dating positives. 
I have learned so much. I'm an expert like you on uh, my specific health condition, which is HIV. I'm not an expert on herpes. But because of being on websites like Dating Positives, where I see uh, other people living with other STIs, it has normalized the, uh, uh, the experience and journey of living with an STI, normalized it, uh, destigmatized it. Now, I'm not saying that it's unimportant. I'm saying that it has just made it not scary. Yeah. Like not a, something that I should fear because I don't. Um, actually, I went on a date with somebody recently and they told me that they had herpes and like I was not afraid. Like I was pretty educated uh, about it. And it also made me realize through this advocacy that I got to I got to open up my eyes a little bit more about other STIs. Because I think that I have still, um, I mean, not currently, but previously, that I have stigmatized people living with other STIs. You know, I'm not living with herpes. I should be. Like, honestly. Like, I, I don't know anybody that has sex that couldn't or shouldn't be in the, sh the same shoes that I'm in, being HIV positive, because I know no one that has always, without a doubt, use protection 100% of the time. And number two, there are no FDA-approved condoms for anal sex, period. All the condoms are only approved and intended, designed for vaginal, uh, vaginal sex. So we have been asking uh, gay men for the past 25 years to use a device that is intended to prevent pregnancy. And then we have used these devices, condoms, as the catch-all for STIs when we know, in fact, they don't provide – we, we don't know how much uh, protection they actually provide yeah. for STIs, especially if they're skin, skin contact. Um, it's like, you know, when you go and you get uh, – when you pull out like a warning label – from, you know, you buy a product and you open up and it has a warning label and it just like drops to the floor. There's so much damn reading. Ain't nobody read that. Yeah. When, you, when you're on a website and you see like uh, terms and conditions, you, you don't read Check the box. <laughs> I agree. You just check the box. Because they overwarn. They overstate, the, you know, these things. And so we don't read any of it. Mm -hmm. I think condoms are the same way. And so we've got to find some other prevention methods and we need to fund them and they've got to be innovative. So that's kind of like the, the excitement and where I'm at. But I know more about herpes today than I did seven years ago. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not scared of people that are living with any STI. And that makes me a better person. We got a lot of good stuff here, man, and I hate that we got to go. There's a lot more that we could have talked about. Is there anything else that you want to leave us with? Uh, that you rock. I appreciate that. Thank you. And that your listeners, that, um, yeah, there is something. You know, if you're listening right now and you are living with an STI or you're living with HIV or herpes, the, the best days of your life are still ahead of you. And the worst day uh, and the, the, the worst thing that you've gone through is not your diagnosis. Uh, it is actually just 
a part of life for you. It's a part of your journey. It's not a negative or a positive regardless of that. But I really want the, uh, everyone listening to um, just remember that you're valid, that you're sufficient, that you're loved. And even if your circumstance right now uh, is lying to you and makes you believe any of those things aren't true, um, I'm just with you in spirit for you to break through that and uh, and continue to live your life. Appreciate that. Now, how can people find you? Uh, they can go to any relevant social media platform and just look up, I'm still Josh. And I'll be right there probably with a corny gif or video or sticking my tongue out with a backwards hat or hanging with a cow or something. I don't know, chicken. <laughs> I'm so damn country. Oh, man. All right, Josh, man. Well, I appreciate your time, and thank you for joining us. Oh, that's okay. I got to go. I'm so busy right now. Anyway, I got to go. Just so busy. Okay. Oh, you're breaking up. Uh, This concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People with Josh Robbins. I can be found on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, Reddit, at H on my chest. Stay tuned for updates on upcoming episodes. And as I mentioned before, this podcast is now a weekly podcast. And that's all thanks to you guys for rating, reviewing, and sharing sharing this podcast and growing it to the point where it is now put in the extra time to get these things edited and uploaded at a regular frequency because it is helping to destigmatize STIs. And like I said, that is all as a result of your efforts till next time. Stay positive.